All right. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you kids for all the things you shared. I loved seeing them and hearing about them. And Gwen, did you make me a special custom name tag? Awesome. Ooh, it's got a microphone and music notes. Lovely. So now I'll get two name tags. Ah, all right. Well, good morning, y'all. Glad you're all with us today. I see there's a lot of Zoomers today. So hi, Zoomers. <laughs> we miss you, but we're glad you're with us this way. All right. So when I was a young child, around four or five years old, my mother had to go to the hospital. It wasn't a serious issue. She needed to have her gallbladder removed. But in that time, those procedures couldn't be done laparoscopically. So it meant like an open surgery, a few days of recovery. And I grew up in Southern California. At the time, uh, my family lived in a house that actually had a swimming pool in the backyard. My father was on single parent duty during my mom's hospital stay and decided to entertain me one afternoon by taking me for a swim. What dad didn't take into account was how to prepare his little girl for her pool time. It's not that dad hadn't swam with me before, but this apparently was the first time he did so without mom there to make sure I was ready to hop in the water, specifically that my hair was ready to hop in the water. You see, at the time I had very long, thin brown hair, which was like one of my mother's probably favorite features of my cute little person. It went all the way down my back, almost to my bottom. My mother took great care to brush and style my hair each day and kept it looking pristine, lovely. My father, however, this was not a skill that he had had to pick up, nor did he realize that the swimming pool was a threat to my long, thin hair. So dad didn't realize that in order to keep my hair neat, it was best to braid it or at least put it in some ponytails before jumping in the water. And so as you might guess, dad just let me swim with my hair long and flowing in the pool. And I'm sure I had an awesome time while we swam. The problem came afterwards. So when it came time to get out of the pool, to get dressed, to get tidy, dad came to realize that my hair was no longer so pristine. It had become a matted mess. So dad pulled out the hairbrush, started to try to brush out the tangles from my long head of hair, probably some detangling spray as well. But like most little girls, I was not a huge fan of this. And dad didn't have the same knowing touch on my head as mom. And there were just so many tangles to fight. And so tears began flowing down my cheeks, my naturally loud voice, which has been there for quite a long time, was vehemently protesting. And at some point, dad, in a desperate desire to calm the situation and fix the problem, decided to move on from the hairbrush and the detangling spray to a bigger tool, the kitchen scissors. So encountering a particularly nasty knot, dad cut it out. But then there was another and another. And each knot that wouldn't succumb to the hairbrush without cries of agony resulted in another snip. Before too long, dad began to realize the problem with this 
miscalculation. He thought he was just cleaning things up a bit, sparing me some pain, but no. My first significant haircut had been performed by my father on a very tangly head in their kitchen, and it was a complete disaster. Dad actually couldn't bear for mom in her fragile post-surgery recovery state to like see the damage he had wrought on my head. <laughs> so he, when she came home from the hospital, he actually sent me to a family friend's to stay for a couple of nights while mom recovered. And only once she had like was home and resting and starting to be recovered for a night or two, did I return for the situation to be revealed. I honestly don't remember my mom's reaction. <laughs> I think she was probably pretty exasperated, but what else, what could she do at this point? So um, I was sent to the hairdresser. I got my first very short haircut in my life. And once the sting of the whole incident had lessened and my hair grew out, it became this story that lived in my family lore for decades. Well, I start with this little family anecdote because though in many ways it's different, it actually reminds me a bit of a story that Jesus told a long, long time ago. And as you might know, we are now a number of weeks into this teaching series I've been leading us through called A Story-Shaped Faith, where we're considering a number of Jesus's stories and asking questions around how those stories are meant to provoke and shape the life and the spirituality of the folks Jesus was speaking them to and of ourselves. These parables, as they were called, were stories meant to surprise and challenge and ultimately bring understanding in deeper ways. And our hope as we study them together is that they might do some of the same for us. So we're gonna look at a story today found in the book of Matthew chapter 13. And I'll just go ahead and read it for us starting with verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, don't you, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So that's our little parable. Matthew records an interpretation that he depicts as being given by Jesus to his disciples that, that we're going to consider too. But before we look at that in a bit, I just want to start by considering this little story itself. Okay, just go over the fundamentals of what's happening here. So we have another agricultural story. Jesus lived in an agricultural society. So a number of the stories that he told were about gardening or harvesting, planting. And this one is about two kinds of seeds sown alongside one another. One is wheat, this grain important for harvesting in order to make bread. The other, the seed says, uh, the other seed, the text says, is a weed. So what exactly is meant by this? What kind of weed? Well, most scholars believe that there's a specific plant that 
historically grew in Jesus's corner of the world that he's referring to. It's likely he's describing a particularly tricky weed known as bearded Darnell. Okay, what's so tricky about Darnell is that as it grows, it looks almost exactly like wheat. Okay, the stalks are nearly identical early on. It's not until they've really grown up, until they've matured, that you can very easily tell the difference between the stalk of wheat and the stalk of Darnell. Because the wheat stalks, once they mature, they're going to be heavy with the grain, and so they droop, whereas the Darnell stalks just stand straight up. And the, uh, the mature stalks also may start to be different, show different colors. But as they're growing, they're both green. They both have like, the same shape. They look very much the same. So, and it's not just that Darnell is like a fake looking wheat, like it's just masquerading as wheat, but it's just got nothing interesting inside. The wheat is actually more pernicious than that because it has seeds that are actually poisonous. So if you make bread out of a mix of real wheat and Darnell, whoever eats it could get pretty sick. So this is a story Jesus is relating. It's a field that's infested with poisonous weeds that look pretty much identical to the crop that's trying to be grown. And Jesus makes clear in this story, it's not that these weeds are just like there on accident, naturally occurring. No, they have been intentionally planted to sabotage the field by some enemy. There's that active intentional resistance to the landowner's harvest. And so in Jesus's story, the workers ask the owner of the land if they should just go and pull up all the weeds. And likely to most of Jesus's audience who you know, are people who know how to plant and grow things, as well as to ourselves, this seems like this would be the logical thing to do, to take out the weeds before they make too much of a mess. But Jesus's householder advises something different, something that the workers would likely have found very frustrating. The owner encourages the workers not to pull the weeds up, but to patiently tolerate the mess. He was concerned that they wouldn't be able to pull the weeds alone. While you're pulling up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat too. The boss was concerned that his workers, though earnest in their desire to make things better, like my dad with that pair of scissors, might unfortunately make things worse. That they might do more harm than good. So better to let both plants grow and at the end, at harvest time, he says, the harvesters will sort the wheat from the weeds. So how do you think Jesus wanted his audience to understand this parable? Well, this is one of the few, there's only like three parables in the gospels in which one of the gospel writers records some sort of explanation or interpretation from Jesus. So this is what Matthew shares a few verses after our parable. I'll read that now, starting with verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seeds stand for the people of the kingdom. And the weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, 
let them hear. Okay. So first, I want to start by acknowledging that just reading this passage, it feels pretty harsh, right? <laughs> I see Joanna's face like, whoa, yeah. So for that reason, I think, honestly, I, as I've been doing a lot of work with this text this week, I've noticed that some preachers just skip this part altogether, <laughs> which I've, I understand the temptation. <laughs> but personally, I don't think like hiding from content that we find uncomfortable is really the way to go. I also personally don't feel like we can't ask critical questions of our ancient texts or, or including the gospels. I think it's right and good when dealing with writings that come to us from multiple millennia ago, written in different languages by human beings in a vastly different culture than our own who are also as humans imperfect. It's right and good to ask hard questions. We should feel free to sift and sort and push back against things in the texts or in the way that they've been interpreted to us perhaps in the past, especially when those readings don't fit with the broader understanding we have of the person of Jesus or the divine Jesus represents in the rest of scripture and in our traditions. I'm just gonna say all of that. So we can wonder how much the words we just read are authentic to Jesus himself or might be flavored in some way by the person who wrote them down, in this case, Matthew. Just as each of us tends to embellish certain aspects or leave other things out when we tell stories. I'm not gonna make a call on that one way or another, but I do think when we read this, it's a question worth at least pondering. Looking at this particularly harsh set of word verses, I also wanna recognize and name that some of us come from traditions in which we were taught a very black and white cataclysmic version of a violent judgment day where we might have been warned to fear a literal hell that would be a fiery furnace to be condemned to unless we prayed a certain prayer or practiced faith in a certain way. And I understand why some folks think texts like this just reinforce that kind of view, that it's pretty cut and dry. But personally, I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do with this parable or its explanation. I don't think it fits what we understand of who Jesus was or the loving, merciful God he claims to represent. And so we're going to push in a little bit and see where else we might go here. What might this challenging story, with its puzzling explanation, actually be pointing to? I have a few potential takeaways I'd like us to consider. First, I think Jesus is asking us to acknowledge that the field of life is messy. We're being asked to acknowledge the truth that the field of life is very messy. Despite where the explanation points, Jesus's story itself, when you just work with the parable, it's not about the future. It's about the present. It's about the reality that we live in a field that's like feels like it's full of weeds. And as Jesus's explanation points out, when we talk about weeds, we're not really talking plants. We're talking about the challenging mix of good and evil that surrounds us, of, of right and wrong. This parable asks us to contend with the brutal, inescapable truth that we live in a messy world in which terrible and beautiful things happen at the same time. And sometimes it's hard early on to distinguish which is which. 
As much as we desire that not to be the case, as much as we long for things to be clean and only good, there is sorrow alongside joy. There is suffering in the midst of celebration. There are forces in our communities that are loving and life-giving, and there are forces that are destructive and violent. Good and evil seem to be both growing in this messy field. Now, I mentioned before that I don't think this explanation text is meant to scare people about the future. Actually, I think it's there to offer hope that ultimately this state of affairs of mixed reality isn't permanent. In Jesus's explanation, as Matthew reports it, I don't see him describing a literal depiction of what will happen at some future end date. When the Bible speaks apocalyptically, it's often dramatic and forward-looking to communicate something that's just bigger than our reality, that's kind of beyond our capacity to understand in everyday language. And so something, I hear Jesus using this dramatic, symbolic imagery to indicate that evil will not persist unabated forever. Eventually, it must be confronted and dealt with in dramatic fashion. And by pointing to this eventual harvest, whenever that happens, Jesus is promising that God is committed to putting things to right. He's assuring us that in the end, the divine will bring justice. And that means ultimately abolishing that which brings harm. Now, that might be at a particular moment to come in the future, or it might be that the work of harvesting has been happening at certain moments throughout history, whenever there's a breakthrough, wherever all of a sudden there's a tipping point and something that could not have been imagined before now becomes a reality, right? However, we're meant to understand this unfolding of things being made right in the future. In the present, this parable is asking us to be clear-eyed about the moment we're in, a moment in which our world, our communities, our families, and if we're honest, our own selves are a mix of good and not so good. The field is a work in progress. And before the harvest, that work in progress, as things develop, it's kind of a hot mess. And that's where we get to the next frustrating reality that I think this parable points to, is that I think it's also saying we're not qualified ultimately to be the weed whackers. We're not really qualified to pull up all the weeds. In the story, the head of household resists the worker's desire to pull up all those weeds. And it's a natural desire. I think all of us have it. If we know the weeds are there, can't we just get rid of them already? right? But the owner says no. He does not trust that the workers can do the job without damaging the field. In the same way, Jesus seems to be saying that we have not been given the role of weed whackers. However tempting it might be, that's not ultimately our job to do. Even though weeds trouble us, pulling them all up and throwing them all away is above our pay grade. Now I say this, I sat with this a lot this week and felt confused and troubled, I gotta be honest with it, as I was sitting with it. 
because is Jesus really saying we're like not supposed to resist problematic realities in our midst? Is he telling us to be complacent in the face of evil? You could read it that way. But I, I think that certainly can't be it. Because when we look at the total scope of the Gospels, much of what Jesus teaches about is all about confronting the things in ourselves and in our ways of relating to each other that bring harm, that bring separation. Jesus is encouraging his followers to transform, to heal, to do something different. Throwing up our hands and saying, whatever. Sin can just like run its course. God will deal with it someday later. That cannot be the response that Jesus is trying to provoke. I think we have to work a little harder than that. Perhaps we get closer to what he's teaching when we recognize there's a difference between resisting harmful ideas, ideas that are toxic and evil, and resisting the people who hold those ideas. There's a difference between going after actions that are violent and destructive and going after human beings who at times make horribly destructive choices, right? I believe it is right and necessary and in the spirit of God's redemptive work in the world to call out the evil ideas in our midst. We should push back against those poisonous seeds that are lurking in those stalks of Darnell. But rooting out the seeds of poison, calling out the places that toxic ideologies are harming folks in our community, that's different than just yanking up the whole stocks and tossing them, right? It's different than pulling people out of our lives and our communities in an attempt to make our little field pure. I think the challenge is here is that it's so easy. It's so easy for us humans to make that leap. It's so easy to go from wanting to root out the horrible idea or practice to rooting out the person who's spoken it or done it, right? It's easy to make those one and the same, but the idea and the person are not one and the same. Many of us have likely seen where this zealous kind of weeding can go awry. We've been on the painful receiving end of it, some of us have been the ones weeded out of the churches we once called home, subjected to painful church discipline, labeled either overtly or implicitly heretics, unrepentant sinners, because we thought differently about spirituality, because we, our marriage ended, because we spoke the truth about our gender identity or our sexuality, or we affirmed others who did the same. We were weeded out by passionate field workers who were confident that removing us from leadership, terminating relationship, telling us we were no longer welcome was the necessary thing to do to protect the field. To us, who are now trying to give life to a different kind of community, a safe, diverse, Jesus-centered community, I think this parable offers a particular challenge. As we live into that vision, we must be careful not to allow our zealousness to confront the evils we see clearly in our age to lead us to simply become a mirror of the very communities we were harmed by. An important part of the shaping of this Haven community has been an ongoing conversation 
about confronting the evils of our day, the constructs that have taken hold in our society and led to systems and structures of inequality. So I have made the argument, and I will continue to do so, that the centering of whiteness, which feeds white supremacy, the centering of masculinity, which feeds patriarchy, the centering of heteronormativity, which feeds homophobia, the centering of traditions like evangelicalism, the centering of, tradition, of systems like capitalism. These are our contemporary versions of what the Bible calls idols. They are the ideas and ways of viewing the world that we invest in, and we call them ultimate truth, but they are a distortion and they keep us from seeing the fullness of the divine in all of their immense color and beauty. Amen, right? And I believe it is the call of communities like Haven to do our part to smash these idols, not just for the sake of tearing everything down, but so that we can release that which is trapped within the beauty, the fragrance, the sacred reality that the idols obscure, amen, right? Amen. I am committed to that, to continuing to call out those evil ideas and actions as we see them in our time, and also to confront those who are espousing those ideas, to say no, supporting your trans kid with life-affirming care and treatment is not child abuse. It is deep parental love. But as I respond with sincerity and passion to these toxic ideas, and the people who may speak them, I must seek not to demonize those who are invested in these idols. Instead, I must hold the humility and honesty to admit that all of us have been impacted by these ideas, even those of us who feel called to speak against them. Resist them as we may, they are still tangled up in our own selves. Weeds and wheat together. I can recognize the idol I've been invested in. I can name it as such. I can speak the truth that I don't want to worship it any longer. But that alone does not purify my field. It doesn't address the way I have been shaped in my very being from my childhood by being taught to worship this idol, my ways of thinking, my habits, my unconscious, unexamined assumptions that have been shaped by my history with this idol. Transforming those places in me, that is ongoing daily lifelong work that I need to commit to and submit to on an ongoing basis. And it is also work I need to recognize I alone am not qualified to do. I cannot be trusted to weed the garden of my heart well on my own. I need a harvester who is above and beyond me and can patiently lead me forward as I seek to extract the poisonous seeds within. I need a diverse, gracious, loving community who can help me see the weeds that I am missing. And I need to be a part of offering that grace and patience and care to others who are also in 
the journey of transformation, a journey of change that I believe our tradition points to when it talks about the work of confession and repentance and new creation. So perhaps this is why Jesus doesn't want us to move into weed-whacking mode so we can welcome that journey of transformation for those we encounter, as well as for ourselves. Of course, there might be moments in our communal life in which we'll need to say to someone, I'm sorry, you can't be here right now. Your presence is causing too much harm. Even in a community that seeks to hold as much diversity as we do, at some point, we need to have a limit to what we can accommodate in order to protect the safety we also value. But when that happens, I think it's really important to keep our eyes focused on confronting the harmful words and actions that might require the challenging response over the person themselves. We must remember that all of us at the core are messy human beings, capable of love and care and also cruelty and violence. And when we lose the capacity to see one another as complex human beings, when we reduce each other to labels that separate to us's and them's, so many dangerous things can happen. Some of you may have heard the chilling speech that was given in Russia this week by President Vladimir Putin. In it, Putin was seeking to speak to his people about the threat of those in Russia he calls the fifth column, those he understands to have pro-Western views. These are Russians who oppose the violence Russia is inflicting on Ukraine as unwarranted and unjust. So Putin praised his Russian supporters as true patriots and called upon them to see their fellow citizens who opposed his campaign in Ukraine as scum and traitors. And he urged these patriots to spit them out like a midge that accidentally flew into their mouths. This is a very human desire to pull all the weeds in full display. And as history has shown us, tragically, again and again, when this hyper-vigilant weeding is empowered with violent authority, it can have devastating consequences. Jesus himself preached restraint. He preached compassion. He preached accountability for words and actions without dehumanizing the ones we call to account. But poignantly, ironically, he preached all those things as one who himself would be zealously identified as a traitor, as a weed. Jesus himself would be violently plucked and brutally killed, weeded out as the groups in power sought to make an example of him and intimidate other would-be traitors into submission. Yet, as our tradition teaches, the overzealous, domineering weed whackers did not have the final word. Instead, on that first Easter, the divine enacted a harvest moment. 
God stood on the side of the wheat, unjustly weeded, and let that wheat shine like the sun in the divine kingdom. Amen? And that brings me, I think, to our final takeaway from this passage. That rather than being weed whackers, we are called to thrive in this messy field by becoming nourishing, life-giving wheat. We're not called to be the whackers, we're called to be the wheat. Interestingly, this little interpretation we have, it doesn't say it's the right ideas. It doesn't say it's the right theology, the right politics, certain practices that are the good seed being planted. No, it says it's the people, the people of the kingdom of God. The people who have been planted are growing into wheat. People who are committed to this upside down, anti-empire values of the divine way, they are the hope of the field. I believe whatever mix of us is, is in us of poisonous seeds and life-giving grain, God is inviting us to be made more and more in the divine image to become like Jesus, the bread of life. Perhaps this is why the divine is patient in letting the field just stay a hot mess for now, because maybe God wants all of us to be transformed from that which poisons and tears down into that which sustains and builds up. So even as we see grievous weeds in our midst, and we should rightly lament the damage that they wrought on our fields, we must not despair. We must not let those weeds choke out the wheat growing within us. We must nourish the beauty that has been planted in ourselves and our communities and trust that it has a life giving power that cannot be overcome by weeds or those who would whack them. We must honor that the divine is present with us, nurturing in us all that sustains and in the moments of harvest, allowing those grains to shine. May we be a part of that important work, that the harvest be rich and life-giving and ongoing and bountiful. Amen. Amen, friends. <laughs>